In episode two, we heard how Bill met his future wife, and we also heard about his army training using the M1 Garand rifle. In this episode, Bill describes his white knuckle experience as a wire cutter in the first wave on Omaha Beach. We come down those rope ladders and kind of a net outfit, you know, it wasn't yeah. just a, one ladder. Anyway, sometimes they was 20 foot away from that boat. Next time they was up against it. But I was in the wire cutting section, the leader of it, so I had to get off first, which I did. And we got in a landing craft. There's 33 men in it, besides the war cutting section, plus the Navy people. I think the figure's right. Anyway, I had five men in the war cutting section. We had what they call Bangalore torpedoes. It was iron pipe with Amatol in each end and dynamite in the middle. And uh, what, what? Sorry, what's what's Amatol? It's an explosive. It's a lot stouter than dynamite. Oh, okay. When it goes off, it made the dynamite blow straight up. Okay. So that was the way they cut the wire. We got off in water about waist deep. We had a big pack on our back, plus that, that ambulance torpedo, plus our M1 rifle, few hand grenades, and, and we had two bangaliers of torpedo, of shells around it, plus the ones in our belt. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty well loaded, and we had to go across that water. We couldn't go back. There wasn't nothing behind us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we had to go forward. <clears throat> and I went across the beach with a machine gun hitting the ground three foot in front of me, just knocking up sand. And I couldn't, couldn't stop, couldn't get any faster. He never did raise his eye enough to hit me. Uh. I got up to the shore then and shooting machine guns was in those pillboxes and we didn't have anything to knock them out with. Just an M1 rifle and a hand grenade. We threw our hand grenades at that hole, but we didn't knock them out. Anyway, why... We had the Germans on the banks pretty well whipped. We were we was pushing them back anyway. We was uh, holding our own, mm-hmm. doing lots of shooting. Anyway, I heard later then something knocked the pillboxes out. But I heard later then that the man over the battleships said he had uh, orders to shoot way over our heads, not close to us at all, <clears throat> but uh, seeing we was hung up, he ordered the battleships in close to shore, lowered their big guns, and he shot about six, seven feet, eight over our heads, knocked them pillboxes out, and he turned us loose. I give the Navy credit for saving the invasion. Yeah, there's there's so much to unpack here. We're going to spend a little time adding a little color to his experiences. One of the things we've learned about the psychology of warfighters is when you put a human being in an existential situation uh, where fear, terror is in training, dominates your mind, You can get tunnel vision and something they call auditory exclusion where you don't hear things well. The only thing you see is right in front of you. He mentioned seeing machine gun fire and bullets hitting three three feet in front of him. 
Um, and what, what Ryan and I want to take a little time doing right now um, from some of the research we did is to unpack a little more of some of the things that he would uh, have experienced in this company on this beach. And one of the things that uh, that is often mentioned about D-Day and some of the issues that um, that we had with the landings had to do with what they called the tides. And so Omaha Beach is about five miles long, all right, and it goes from west to east, as Ryan already mentioned, and it's composed of, of packed sand that as you get closer to, um, uh, to, to, to shore uh, is packed sand that yields to a, a shingle uh, sorted in size by thousands of storms. These are basically a pebble shingle. And we already mentioned the beach has five exits uh, up this 100-foot escarpment. That's where he was trying to go. He's trying to get the wire cutters and the Bangalore torpedoes to go and blow up that wire so you can make it up these five draws up this 100-foot escarpments and get into these narrow water courses to the villages behind them so they could secure the beach. But the tide, the Norman tide, and this is described in Rick Atkinson's book, uh, Guns at Last Light, is described as a primordial force unseen in any previous amphibious landing. It would rise 23 feet twice daily. It inundated the beach and everything on it at a rate of a vertical foot every eight minutes. And then it would ebb, it would come back out at a rate of almost an inch per second. In low tide, when you had low tide, you typically revealed around 400 yards of open strand that they would have had to go across. But six hours later at the low tide mark, uh, when high tide came in, most of that beach would lie under 20 feet of water. Mm. We're talking about very you know, wild, rapid, strong tides that had a, a material impact on our casualties because the planners had chose to attack at a rising tide on the morning of June 6th. And this would permit the landing craft to move closer to those draws, closer to the beach, closer to the bluffs without having to cross as much of that territory. But as we're going to explain later, for a variety of reasons, that didn't happen. And because uh, a lot of these landing craft um, were dispersed more wildly and came on the beach later than he anticipated, they had a lot more of this beach to cross. And so that's that's one thing that I want to unpack here. And the other is, let's describe some of the some of the things that he and his his company, Company E, about 150 to 200 men that he would have trained with every day, experienced as they made it onto the beach. So in this book again, uh, Guns at Last Light by Rick Atkinson, um, there's, uh, it, it speaks about the 116th Infantry Regiment, and he was Company E as part of it, as being these rural Virginians marinated in Confederate glory and descended from the Stonewall Brigade of 1861. Um, it had been trained for 20 months as part of the 29th Infantry Division. As we mentioned, this 116th Infantry Regiment was one of three regiments that made up the division that was used, the 116th, as a tip of the spear on D-Day. Um, and when they were landing, it is written here that officers ordered men in the landing craft, men like Bill would have heard as they approached the shore to keep their heads down. And as one lieutenant explained, it was so, quote, they wouldn't see what was going on and lose heart. That's how frightening these officers, what they saw in front of them and they didn't want their men to see it because they were afraid they wouldn't get off the landing craft, but they would see soon enough. So some of these things we're going to explain now are some of the things that these officers and men saw that made it so difficult for a human being to, to, to cope and grasp and grapple with uh, these scenes of combat. So on the right flank of the invasion zone, that would be to the, to the right, to the west, German gunners had turned uh, what was called dog uh, green into an abattoir. An abattoir is a killing floor, a slaughterhouse. Without firing a shot, Company A was reportedly, quote, inner and leaderless in 10 minutes. And Company A... Of the 116th? Of the 116th um, would be called the Bedford Boys. There's a book yeah. written about the Bedford Boys. And in a wiki article, uh, they, they expand on that and they say that Company A was virtually wiped out by heavy machine gun fire uh, or from drowning in the surf. And by the end of the day, Company A, with 
230 men on D-Day, by the end of the first day, there'd be 18 men left alive. Wow. Think about that. It was, mm. it was the uh, highest casualty rate. So most of these men from Company A were from Bedford, Virginia. So that's where the name Bedford Boys comes from. And to this day, the, uh, uh, there's a museum in Bedford, um, and it's called the uh, National D-Day Memorial. is located in Bedford in honor of their losses um, because it was the, uh, that community suffered proportionally the highest losses on D-Day of any uh, city or area in America. So these are the things that were going on on the beach uh, at the time. And in fact, Sergeant Frank Draper of Company A, uh, he was killed when he made it off the beach in an anti-tank round. That's a cannon shell. Had tore away his left shoulder. And men described being able to see his heartbeat in the hole that was left in his left shoulder and that he, um, he bled to death right there. And his, um, his surviving daughter or sister, I should say, lamented that, um, that he didn't even get a chance to quote-unquote kill anybody, that, that <laughs> it was just so abrupt that what happened there was um, so horrific that it, it's amazing that anyone moved from the beach. And so, um, Ryan, you've got a couple more examples from men from his company. I just mentioned some from Company A. Um, could you share those with the audience? Yeah, so the commanding officer um, of Company E, which was Bill's company, is Captain Lawrence Medill, or Maydill. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Um, but he landed uh, with Bill's group. Now, Bill doesn't recall him. Um, and because of the storms that came through the, the, the day before, there was a very strong longshore current that pushed a lot of these guys off of the mark of the beach sector they were supposed to land in. Company E, the 116th, uh, was was the most widely dispersed group as far as missing their actual sector. They were supposed to land in Easy Green. They landed almost a kilometer to the left of the beach down amongst the 16th Infantry Regiment. That's why I keep bringing up the 16th, because they ended up uh, co-mingling with those guys, and they essentially formed a unit with the 16th and the 116th working together to push their way up through the beach there and stuff. The, the Company E landed in two groups. Captain Medill, Captain Maydill, was in the furthest, far, the farthest left group that landed down amongst the 16th Infantry. And after speaking with Bill and looking at maps, we believe Bill's group landed not quite as far down uh, but still on the very edge of the 16th Infantry's landing sector, you know, right there with them. So uh, Captain Maydill, um, there's an account here about him. There's actually two corroborating accounts with him. Um, he was wounded on the trip across the beach. He found that PFC Walter Masterly was the only remaining man of the mortar squad, and although he had a mortar, had no am had the mortar shell itself, he had no ammunition. Masterly volunteered to go back to the beach and salvage some ammunition, but the captain told him, no, set up your mortar while I go back and get the ammunition. So he picked up the ammunition from the beach, and on his return trip back, he was hit twice by machine gun fire, and he went down. His last words were, senior non-com, take the men off the beach. Hmm. A second re accounting of seeing Captain Maydill was from Sergeant Walter Smith of the Company E of the 116th. He said, I remember disbarking from the landing craft and trying to take shelter from the enemy fire behind one of the obstacles. Captain Maydale came up behind me and with others ordered all who could move to get up the beach. I looked up at him and it's le his left arm appeared to be almost blown off. So he died shortly after that. And um, as Bill has said, he'll mention, he saw no officers. Yeah. I think this group lost some of their men right off the bat yep. in the landings. And they were they were not battle-tested yet, the 116th. They hadn't fought uh, and seen action yet like others, like the 16th Infantry Regiment, for instance. There are some additional accounts of um, E Company. 
Oh, the 116th uh, from Rick Atkinson's book again. Um, you know, for example, he they mentioned that there's around 32 soldiers on on these boats. These GIs compared. So what what Bill would have heard when he talked to the machine guns, these German machine guns had a very high rate of fire. They were called the MG42, and they could fire more than a thousand rounds a minute, which was you know almost double what the American uh, machine gun could fire at that point in the war. And uh, the GIs said that the machine gun sounded like a, a Venetian blind being lifted up rapidly. Um, it was a very frightening sight. The machine guns were reliable and, and, and very, very deadly. And in fact, in one boat, the LCA 1015, which again was part of the 116th Regiment, all 32 soldiers in one boat were slaughtered, including their captain. The lieutenant was shot in the brain and continued to uh, direct troops, a survivor recounted, until he, quote, sat down, held his head in the palm of his hand, and then fell over dead. Wounded men all over the beach were jabbing themselves with morphine, shrieked for medics, uh, one of whom was using safety pins to close a gaping leg wound. A person in front of this individual uh, saw a guy get shot in the throat. Another one got shot in the heart, and he said, I just run on. My training took over, but the, the sailor who saw this said he saw a soldier sitting in the sand weeping softly and tossing stones in the water, and he was quoted as saying, this is a debacle. Mm. And it was a debacle. And why? Well, it turns out that out of all the five invasion beaches, Omaha was the most intensely defended and really least well uh, understood based on the intelligence we gathered prior to the invasion. So the defenses on Omaha were fearsome. They were on all the beaches, but particularly Omaha. So for example, 85 machine gun nests, soon known to the GIs as, mo as murder holes, covered Omaha Beach. That was more than all three of the British invasion beaches combined. So this isn't just a case of we had a lot of casualties on a particular beach, and therefore, um, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're trying to make up a story for why the casualty rate was so high with this particular sector. The bottom line is, the defensive position at, at Omaha Beach was the um, most heavily defended of, of all of those that, uh, that we invaded on that day, which is why we hear so much about Omaha Beach and not as much about Utah or Gold or Juno and Sword. And so um, I could go on and on about the things, the statistics, what they found on Omaha Beach, but just know that the men that were put ashore on that stormy day on June 6th, a number of mistakes were made. Currents moved all the landing craft to different places. Everything went to hell in a handbasket. Men were getting slaughtered. I, I don't know how a human being can process that, but remarkably, uh, we did on that day and eventually would overcome. Um, the next clip is going to start talking a little bit more about getting past the first day, this dreadful day that we've tried to convey to the audience uh, from firsthand accounts from his regiment, from his company, things he would have seen. And we're going to start talking about his ability to move beyond the beaches and reflect on what happened and what went wrong. We got in, we fought the Germans on in, uh, I don't know how many miles, three or four anyway, when dark come. And... When dark come, why, I had 20 or 30 men, I don't know how many, following me. I don't know why they was following me, but they were. All of them was privates. We didn't have a lieutenant. And you were a private. I was a private. We didn't I have a corporal, non-com, yeah, so no kind, just privates. Anyway, when morning come, why, I told these, they asked me what I was going to do. I said, I'm going to stay here at daylight. I ain't going no further than it dark. I could hear shooting over here and over there and out in front, but uh, none in front of us, but out on each side. Daylight come, why, we'd go just about out, out of ammunition. And I said, well, I'm going to get some ammunition. I went back to the beach 
I knew all of those dead men had ammunition. And I, I'm not going to tell you that I got it off of the dead men because my mind won't let me remember it. That's the first time I'd seen the beach. I, when it was behind us, we didn't see anything. Mm-hmm. But there was, there was dead men everywhere. Oh, yeah. The, the water was even bloody along the edge. Anyway, why I got the ammunition. I seen down the beach a little ways they had wounded soldiers. I went down there and this man in my platoon and I tried to talk to him, but he had a bandage all around his head. He couldn't talk. But anyway, went back into the where it was supposed to be up on top. <clears throat> and we went, I don't know what direction. I think we went north, but I'm not sure of that. So as Rick Atkinson wrote, quote, for those who outlived that day, this first day, this D-Day that he's just talking about being able to go back to the beach on his second day, when the psychology of warfare would have allowed him to see more of the aftermath of what he endured the day before. Those who survived what he writes as this high thing, this bright honor, this destiny, the memories would remain as shot shorn as the beach itself. Uh, Bill would have remembered waves slapping on the steel hulls. Bill would have remembered bilge pumps choked with vomit from seasick men making quote unquote utterly inhuman noises into their gas capes. He would have seen green water curled over the gunwales as coxswains waited for the tidal surge to lift them past the bars before dropping the ramps with a heavy clank and shouting, It's yours. Take it away. Bill would remember the red splash of shell burst plumping the shallows and machine gun bullets puckering the sea like, quote, wind-driven hail before tearing through the grounded boat so that one sergeant recalled, Men were tumbling out just like corn cobs off a conveyor belt. Mortar fragments said to be the size of shovel blades had skimmed the shore as they trimmed away arms, legs, and heads. So we hope we're able to convey or provoke what is probably a startling mental image of some of the things that may have gone through Bill's mind as he made it back to the beach on the second day and described what he saw in a little more detail than he may have remembered uh, during the assault when everything's going on and you get tunnel vision. But now we're going to transition a little bit. We have um, a clip or two that talks about what happened on day two or three, and then we're going to revisit uh, D-Day again. There's some follow-up questions that Ryan and I had. So let's uh, move on to the next clip, Ryan, where he talks a bit about um, day two. Anyway, all these men have fallen me. I went up to, I found a, a road. They called it sunken roads. Mm-hmm. We would have called it a branch with a little water running down the middle of it. But uh, they had been all kind of fightings there. There was dead men, Americans and Germans both, burnt out equipment. And anyway, I went on up that road to the little town of Vierville, Samir, France. Mm-hmm. And there was a lieutenant there. When I walked up, said, Sergeant, put your men in that hole right there. We're going to take this town. And I said, all right, but I'm not a sergeant. I'm a private, just like the rest of these men. He said, you are now. Mm-hmm. From that time on, I was a sergeant. Wow, so you got a battlefield commission right. from second, private to sergeant. The second day. Anyway, why we fought and got to the little town of Spear Samir and took yeah. it. Fought on the way to St. Lowe. 115th was taken St. Lowe too at the same time. We uh well we we'll say we cleaned up after they went through the mm-hmm. They just made us force through the middle, you know, and left the rest of it. Anyway, when we got through St. Lowe, we all got back with our regular units after that. 
you know, he's moved on pretty quickly from Omaha Beach now to the the Battle of Normandy, which is the St. Lowe area. It was the next major battle for his group and really the, the, the Allied army that had come ashore there. Prior to that, he talks about Vierville-sur-Mer, and Bill was all over the place. That first day, uh, his unit landed on a kilometer on down the beach from where they were supposed to land. They got intermingled with the 16th. They took out WN-62. They came up through the Colville draw. So if you think of the draws there on Omaha Beach, there's the Kborg draw, which was the furthest down the beach where WN-60 was guarding to, that To draw. the east or west? That would have been to the east. Yeah. yeah. And so then the next one was the Colville draw, which today is just to the east of the American Cemetery. Mm. Then there's the St. Laurent draw and then the Vierville draw. He fought on D-Day, helped him capture the Colville draw, we believe, got to the top of the plateau that night, made it all the way in about maybe about a mile or so to the highway, the road that runs along the coast there, all along those towns. And... Spent the night there. Next morning, went down, got ammunition, had all these guys following him. Yeah. Like from, uh, from the time early on, right, when he got off the patrol craft. That's or right. landing craft, yeah. And so they were all asking him, what are you going to do? He's like, well, we're out of ammo. We need to go get some ammo. So he went and get the ammo. He comes back up. These guys keep following him. They didn't go with him. He went and got the ammo. He came back up. These guys all follow him. They walk along that road, and he talks about seeing a big battle that had happened. Well, that's the St. Laurent draw right there. The next one to the west. The next one. And so uh, on the way to Vierville, and so they go through that area. Apparently, that had fallen recently because there's dead Americans and Germans all over the place. It had likely just wrapped up if, if it wasn't still going on. And they kept making their way over to Vierville, and that's when he runs into this officer that says, get your men in this hole. We're going to take Vierville. And Vierville was the first real official victory for the 116th uh, at D-Day. That's on their actual, in their their unit history as their first big victory that they got. Yeah, and something else he adds is his unit got back together. As we mentioned earlier, uh, every infantry division <clears throat> uh, during this time period had three combat regiments of 3,000 men apiece. The 116th was one of those regiments. It was part of the tip of the spear. It was there for D-Day. And now on D-Day plus two, you're starting to see the other two regiments land and uh, regroup with the 29th Infantry Division so that they can assault towns like Vierville as a, as a, a proper uh, division-sized force. Um, and so one of the things Bill said when he landed on the beach is all these guys started following him. I don't, he goes, I don't know why they were following me. <laughs> we know why. And Tony and I said... I know why they were following him. Yeah. Because he was on a mission. He knew what he was doing. He was a take-charge guy. He was a southeast Oklahoma boy who was literally a cowboy. Yep. He— Raised out in the woods, took care of his family. He knew how to take care of himself. Yeah. And uh, he just—he put his head down, and he went, and he went like a bat out of hell, and everyone followed that guy because he was going. Yep. And now he's a sergeant on day two. That, that this private landed. And a lot of that also had to do, sadly enough, with the number of casualties that were inflicted on that regiment in particular. And, and Ryan's going to go over those in a later clip. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things that I, he mentions here shortly, I think, and is just the fact that he goes, I never saw any officers. When I was on the beach, we landed. It was just, it's, he said, it just seemed like there was just all privates yeah. there. And I think that their guys got taken out we already talked about the commanding officer that mm -hmm. died on the beach, uh, just down from them. Yep. Company A got completely decimated. There was nothing left of it. The Bedford boys. The 116th by, took the most horrific uh, casualties of any of the of regiments. any unit on, on, on Omaha, Omaha Beach, for, which well, was— Really, probably all of the all of the D Day beaches, right? Which I was just going to say, in Omaha was the the most was uh, bloodiest, the, the bloodiest of all of them. Well, this next clip, we go back to D Day a bit. Um, this happens a lot when we interview veterans where, you know, they're um, following kind of a narrative as they remember it. And occasionally Ryan and I will bring them back to other points to, you know, try to, you know, elaborate. see if we can elaborate more or expand on something they said. So uh, go ahead and listen in. Whenever you came in on your landing craft that morning, uh, was it HR? Was it 630? Was that about when you came in or were you yeah. a little before that? Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think it went down in history that we landed at 6.30. That's okay. when we were supposed to. Now, that was, was that low tide at that point? 
I couldn't tell you. Yeah. That. Okay. No. Well, was there a lot of beach that you had to cross before oh, you yeah. ever got to oh, the yeah. to the shingle and everything? Beach. Okay. At least as much as a football field, you know. Right. Okay. Something, I'd heard that. Something like that. Now, were there Belgian gates there also? Uh, the big iron piece oh, yeah. that yeah. that you had to go around. They would funnel you through, and then then you'd be right in their lines of fire. Yeah. How did you guys take those out? We didn't. Really? No, we went we went around and you know, they was there to keep the ships from coming up close to shore. Uh-huh. No, we just kept going forward. Okay. Uh we didn't have anything. Our all of our support drowned out in the ocean. Uh, all of the artillery, the Tanks that they was going to make float in rubber deals, they'd all sunk out there. We didn't have anything behind us. And, uh, of course, that made it a lot worse than it mm-hmm. would have been if we'd had something knocked in pillboxes out with. And all of this same time, them big shells was busting everywhere. And... Uh, I'm sure they killed a lot of us, mm-hmm. but the, the ones on the bank did too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the three things he mentioned were a lack of support from the engineers, the tanks, and the artillery. Well, where where were they? I mean, the planners had them um, supposedly to be made available for the invasion. Well, again, from the book uh, by Rick Atkinson, Guns at Last Light, he he explains where where these uh, important assets were or were not in this case. So first, let's talk about the engineers. The Army and Navy engineers, um, they were expected to lug 28 tons of explosives, and they were supposed to land three minutes behind uh, Bill in the infantry, uh, part of that spearhead, to blow 16 gaps, each 50 yards wide, through a local tidal zone obstacles uh, that were emplaced in three belts. But little went right. Some of the engineers landed early and alone. Some landed late. Uh, nearly all drifted left to the east, which Ryan's already talked about because of those currents from the storm the previous day. Um, so they didn't reach their assigned beaches. And because of the current and navigation error, um, it was really chaotic. And, and, and a lot of them didn't make it. So, for example, one of the team, Team 4, an 88-millimeter shell hit that landing craft. It blew the coxswain, the, the driver landing craft, overboard and slaughtered the entire demolition team. And in fact, an eyewitness account from that particular hit saw one man's lower trunk and severed legs were described by a seaman as, quote, sticking up in the water like a pitiful V for victory. <laughs> People didn't die good deaths uh, on on Omaha Beach. And uh, seven died, again, on the engineers in Team 11 when shellfire hit their rubber boat, their rubber boat. Um, Of of the 40-man team, only uh, 15 would make it. Uh, A mortar round caught Team 12, another demolition team, um, when the mortar round tripped a TNT primer cord that they were laying on the beach and the explosive charges, all of these things detonated prematurely because of that German mortar round that landed amidst all of their explosives. And that uh, that mortar round uh, killed and wounded 19 of the engineers, and the explosion was so violent that these three-legged steel hedgehogs that were on the beach uh, blew up in the air and were falling on the beach like fence posts. Those and those were pretty well dug in. Yes, to they make were. it through the tides and everything like that. So, My gosh. so there's the engineers. Uh, they were getting uh, blown out of the water, blown up on the beach. They were getting misdirected, misallocated. So there's that. What about the tanks? Well, here's what happened: the Sherman tanks. These are supposed to be Sherman amphibious tanks. Duplex meaning drive. Duplex drive. They were supposed to be seagoing with these inflatable canvas skirts around them that many people may have seen in movies or books. They had twin propellers and whatnot. Well, they began plopping into the waves, as it's written, from these LCT ramps, quote, like toads from the lip of an ornamental pond. Uh, that's not a good thing, right? That's not how you want your tanks to be deployed in the water. The historian John Keegan uh, uh, also wrote that the tanks only had nine inches of freeboard. Above what, the waves. Above the waves. 
And he was, some of these waves were six to nine feet high that they were landing in. So a lot of them uh, sank immediately. And in fact, um, of the 32 Shermans in one battalion that was supposed to be supporting Bill in this clip you just heard, uh, 27 of them sank of the 32. And they all got pushed off course because of the all currents. Of them. All because of them. they didn't have the power like these boats would to fight the current. They were pretty much adrift. Yes. And just going towards the shore and wherever they landed was where they landed. So we just talked about the engineers. We just talked about the tanks. The third part of the triumvirate that he mentioned was, where's the artillery? Where's the mobile artillery that was supposed to be available for us on the beach? Well, it's written here that the artillerymen also struggled to land their guns. A dozen 105-millimeter howitzers from the 111th uh, Field Artillery Battalion, which was attached to the invasion, had been loaded into these duck amphibious trucks, each of which carried 14 men, 50 shells, and a protective rampart of 18 sandbags, enough to make these ducks, quote-unquote, altogether unseaworthy. So it's one of those things where, you know, there's the idea of how you're going to prosecute this operation, and then there's how you prosecute the operation. And they were doing a lot of these tests offshore in relatively placid waters, uh, in places like Slapton Sands, which we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once they went into the actual invasion off the Normandy Beach, all of these things um, kind of fell apart. They weren't adequate for it. So eight of these quickly shipped water and capsized. And three others were lost to waves or shell fire before reaching the shore. Uh, none of them made it to the shore. So the sort of equipment that the um, that the assault force needed to attack these bunkers, to make it through these draws that were supposed to be organically supplied by the invasion itself had all failed, but someone came to the rescue, (laughs) and it was the Navy. It's widely reported, and we've got a couple things here about how the Navy helped make up for the deficiencies in what um, was supposed to be in the landing beaches. So it's written here that about a dozen destroyers, some of which came so close to the beach that their keels uh, scraped the bottom of the beach, uh, they plied inshore stations to basically fire on the targets that were marked by army tracer fire from the few remaining tanks. And one soldier on the beach watching, these would have been people like Bill seeing this on the beach, one soldier watching the shells arc across the bluff that they were trying to attack reported that a man standing there felt as if he could reach up and pick them out of the air. And it wasn't just destroyers. After one shuddering broadside from the USS Texas, yeah. woohoo! Right, the Texas, the a World War One dreadnought, yeah, that the was, only surviving, the only today. surviving dreadnought yeah. today. That was part of the invasion. Was launching fourteen inch shells, and what they had when this uh, when the Texas was dropping these shells, they had an RAF pilot spotting for the battleship. And he cried from his Spitfire cockpit when he saw the results of the bombing. He cried, "Oh." Simply champion. <laughs> that's so British. I say that all the time. I'm going to start using that. Oh, man, that's champion. What's old is new again. But there's more. You've got a personal account from an individual ship that helped uh, uh, break down some of these bunkers. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned before, I've been looking, uh, reading a lot of information from the Omaha Beach book written by Joseph Balkowski, and it's excellent. It's chock full of firsthand accounts. Uh, the USS Doyle. Um, was a, a ship, it was a destroyer, I believe, just off the coast. And this is the entry from the commander of the USS Doyle, James Marshall. It's at 1,100 hours, 11 a.m. on June 6th. Stopped 800 yards off of Beach Easy Red. That would have been where Bill, where the 116th was intermingled with the 16th. Observed enemy machine gun emplacements on the side of a steep hill at the west end of the fo- a Beach Fox Red, enfilading Landing Beach. Fired two half salvos from five-inch guns, Target destroyed. Shifted fire to casemate at the top of the hill. Fired two half salvos. Target destroyed. Army troops begin slow advance uphill from beach. And yeah. Bill has said, he goes, I credit the Navy with the success of the Omaha Beach landing because we were getting shellacked and pushed back in the sea. I mean, this was, as Tony said, it was, it was just a slaughterhouse with a lot of these guys just getting off the landing craft. And the Navy saw how... How horrible we were struggling to get up the hills and had to take out. These guys had 30 out six M1 Garands rifles and right. grenades to take out these gunite pillboxes with 75 millimeter cannons in them. Yeah. How are you going to do that? 
Well, thank goodness the Navy comes in and they do this bold move. They come in parallel broadside to the shore, just off the beach. Yeah, I read dangerously shallow. Uh, yeah, I, uh, you can read accounts where some of these destroyers and ships were hit by shore batteries mm-hmm. uh, repeatedly, and many of these destroyer captains were violating orders. Yeah. to go that close to the beach to provide cover support. Uh, there's an account of someone on one of the destroyers could see the bloodshed that was going on in Omaha and said, screw it. Yes. And just rolled his destroyer in there and started providing support. So, Yeah, the- and I had read, actually I'd read in, I think, Stephen Ambrose's book, the ship moved along parallel to the coast, and then he backed up. Yep. And he was like, and just kept backing up and firing and moving back and forth to take out all these emplacements. And like I said, a lot of these destroyers were getting, you know, shellacked by, you know, uh, heavy five-inch shore batteries. And so it was, it was a really, it was a, it was a really, it's impressive when you, there's always this, this rivalry between the services, right? You know, the Navy are called squids and swabbies and the Marines are jarheads and whatnot. But at the end of the day, they're all soldiers. And when they're fighting a combined arms operation like this, it didn't matter. One additional thing to add, why do you think they had orders not to come in that close with those ships? Because they were worried about the 75 millimeter cannons that were in... That, that were part of their uh, intelligence for these fortifications, these WN fortifications. Well, as they got close that day and they got a good look at things, they realized that the 75-millimeter cannons weren't pointing out to sea. They were pointing at angles along the beach. Yeah, parallel to the shore. And and so you'd get this crossfire of not only the cannons but also the uh, you know the machine guns and the, the, the artillery that they had going there. F- straight on looking out from the ocean – all you saw was a cement wall, mm-hmm. but the guns were behind the wall pointing at an angle. So these ships could come in then closer and take out those pillboxes, those fortifications, without the worry of having them pointing at them point blank like that. But And yet there were guns that, that did hit these destroyers, but what you say also points to the um, the intelligence failings, especially in Omaha Beach when it came to a variety of factors, which we're going to talk about actually in our next clip. You described in your biography that uh, there was no one in front of you. Uh, now, was that later that you realized that? Or was that, uh, I know that Company E, you guys landed, what was your target beach that you were supposed to land at? Was that Easy Green? Easy Green, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, did you land at Easy Green? Where were you no, actually landing? We, Where did we you landed land? further, further down. We missed part of Easy Green. We we may we didn't land where we were supposed to. We landed further down. Okay. But uh, I understand that there were some currents along the shore that kind of everyone veer, you know, kind of drifted left as they were coming in, and then you had that. Plus, you had strong winds from the same direction. Plus, uh, there was a lot of smoke and everything in the air. So a lot of the landmarks that the landing craft captains were looking for, they couldn't see. So they were aiming for whatever and they got, you guys kind of all got scattered a bit. Well, of course, that part of it, I don't know. Sure. You know, I don't know anything. I just kind of felt like that the ships out in the ocean went too far down from where they should have been and let us off. Of course, I think we made a straight from the boat to the from the ships to the sand. I think we went in a straight line, you know. Mm-hmm. But we did go too far down, and that's where we got mixed up with the first division. Uh-huh. They were down on ours because we were attached to them, and and these men following me. I had 29th men and, and 1st Division both with me, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, they were all privates, all just like I was. We mm-hmm. wanted to live. Yeah. And it were, it's, it's in hindsight now, there were three more, but there were three primary mistakes that were made in the planning phase that contributed to some of this confusion that he speaks of. And this is from Rick Atkins' book again. Um, 
they say that the uh, errors were made, um, one of them by the Navy and two by the Army. So to minimize the risk of German shorefire, which we talked about in the previous clips, against naval assets, naval captains had anchored their transport ships 11 miles distance, guaranteeing the derangement of the landing echelons by wind, current, and confusion. 11 miles away from the assault beach is forever. That is, that is uh, at least twice as far, four times farther than were the ships that would have been staging and supporting invasions in the Pacific, for example. So that was, um, quite frankly, afterwards realized as a mistake. The shore battery fire wasn't effective enough to, to basically validate that decision. And when you got a little transport, you know, pumping along at six, seven, eight knots, miles per hour in rough seas, um, uh, there's about 90 things that can happen, and 89 of them are bad. Um, the second one is, in a bid for tactical surprise, Army commanders had insisted on truncating the naval bombardment, which is often the most effective bombardment to soften up a beach relative to air power, uh, to barely 35 minutes. And that was enough to scare the defenders, but not enough, uh, given the clean miss by the Allied Air Forces to help support that, to subdue them. So really all they were able to do is the Allied Air Forces dropped the bombs too far inland to be effective, and the naval gunfire, which had the ability to spot and adjust their fire for these different blockhouses, were only allowed to support the landings for 35 minutes, which did almost nothing. Um, and then the last one, is the army had chosen to storm the narrow beach exits that we've been talking about, these draws, right? Where the fortifications were the sturdiest, rather than stressing infiltration up the bluffs to outflank the enemy's strong points. So basically, you've got a large amount of troops on a beach. They're being funneled into these narrow draws where you can spray all kinds of, of uh, machine gun and mortar fire. And really, the idea of an infantry attack is to hit them where they ain't and try to outflank the enemy. And instead, they attacked the teeth of the defenses, the worst part of it. So these are the three mistakes, you know, that we can talk about decades later that in hindsight played um, really uh, uh, the, the, the primary role in the debacle that happened at uh, Omaha Beach. I wonder what actually made them decide to attack the causeways straight on. I know that their thought was, we've got to get all of our men and material off the beach as it's offloaded, you know, tanks and, and trucks and, and whatever, supplies. Um, you know, but the rangers attacked Point to Hawk. Yeah, and, with and grappling with, hooks. With grappling hooks and ladders <laughs> right. and going up a vertical cliff yeah. that's about 100 feet high. In a much smaller forest they were. They, went, they did that. Why wouldn't they do the same on a much a much less formidable obstacle, which were these 100-foot-high escarpments, essentially. Um, but they were not vertical. I've, I've been You've there. Been there. They're, yeah. they're, they're just uh, – it would. I just don't understand why they wouldn't have thought that. I mean, was there some other intelligence that they had that made it – That maybe they thought it was all mined, you know? Maybe. And I, maybe it was. Um, another issue that we had that may have played into this decision is lack of intelligence. Maybe they, under, maybe they misunderstood um, – those defenses. And also, we also uh, had an intelligence failure in a number of men that were defending the beach. There was a, a division there, I think the 352nd uh, German uh, Infantry Division, that was at Omaha Beach that, that the Allies didn't even know about. So there's a general rule of thumb when you're assaulting a defended position that you should have three times as many attackers as there are defenders. And in Omaha Beach, that ratio is more like... Uh, Three attacks for every five. Three attacks for every five. So, so not only did you have not the numbers you needed to overwhelm these defenses, but you funneled what little resources you had in the the, the worst areas possible on that beach. And then the effect is everything you've heard us talk about, and all the countless movies and books that have shared about what that beach was like, and it was what, horrible. What's amazing is with all of these errors, whatever you want to call them, uh, setbacks with this invasion, we still made it ashore. And by midnight that night, our guys were past the bluffs and were inland a ways. They had a mm -hmm. toehold, yep. you know, yep. and it's still amazing that, you know, even with all those mistakes, 
Yeah, and if, if you look at a map of of uh, the invasion beaches, if you pull one out in in if the listeners you looked at it uh, from the west to the east on the west part of the invasion beaches, you had Gold, Juno, and Sword. Those were the British and Canadian invasions, and then you had Omaha, and then next to that, to the farthest to the east, would have been uh, Utah. Utah. So by if they could not land our troops or hold that section of the beach, you would have split of those Omaha. forces of Omaha. If you d- if, if the Germans had prevailed and the Americans had not prevailed at Omaha, the Germans would have split the beach. They would have split the invasion beaches between two different forces from two different nations who might have different ways of communicating with each other, right? This is pre-GPS and cell phone, right? And they could have attacked the remaining forces on either beaches piecemeal. It would have been a debacle. You're, you were in the wire cutters. Yeah. And you used the Bangalore torpedo. Did you did you get to use your torpedo? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we blew the water. Okay. That's when we found out there was nobody behind us. Laid down on our bellies and was shooting at soldiers on the bank. And then after we got the water blowed, we looked back and there was nobody behind us. The landing craft we were on had, uh, I think, 33 more soldiers, plus the Navy, and it blew up, and they were all killed right there. Just us six got off of that. Oh, my gosh. That's the reason there wasn't nobody behind I understand. I didn't realize. Yeah, so um, what a horrific fate to, to, to make it through the beach. You jump off, and you just run. You go do your job. You clear the wire and you turn around like, all right, everybody come on through and there's nobody behind you. And you realize that all those guys you're on the boat with died right after you exited the boat. Yeah, there's six left out of the 32 on the landing craft. So as 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 he got the wire blown and everything, um, you know, he and his men were um, in this portion of the beach, you know, like, like as I, I mentioned with the 16th Infantry guys. And there's a story here that's pretty interesting. I think it's uh, you know kind of telling of what was going on, and and Bill kind of has alluded to the fact that they didn't have any leadership in his group where they landed. Um, this is an after-action report uh, from Company F talking about this area right here. Seeing the pillbox in flames, Sergeant Strogny urged his men forward. He got up, but no one followed. He did see a good spot to the left, so he urged his men to it. His men followed him, but the men from Company E, 116th Infantry, who were nearby, did not. Sergeant Strojny had his men pick up two BARs that the 116th had abandoned, and he worked to the left to the point where his unit was to cross, but as there was a wire he could not get through, Strojny got a man from the 116th to blow a hole through the wire. The BAR men were placed on the right side to fire into a wooded area, Private Charles Rocheford had his hand blown off by a mine as he came into position. Sergeant Strojny ran through the gap, cleared the minefield, and motioned for the soldiers to follow. Five men from Strojny's section and an officer and a squad from the 116th followed. They received machine gun fire from their right flank. And the entire group headed to this enemy fire, and seven Germans were killed. So I don't know for sure if Bill... Was that guy? Was that, blew that the wire. guy that blew the wire? Right, because um, they mentioned the one sixteenth at that spot. But something else about this: so Strogeny, he was not part of the one sixteenth. What was he a part of? He was part of, as I mentioned, part of the sixteenth infantry, and so within it, which was part of first infantry division. And why is that important? Because those, yeah, good point. <laughs> the the first infantry division, the big red one, yes, were battle hardened. Yes. These guys had been had lived through North Africa and yep. Sicily. These guys had been. Uh, they're, they were well-seasoned in working under fire. And so who was leading this? The the guys from the Big Red One, right? The 16th? Yeah. Remember that what you just said, the, the 116th Regiment? Remember he tried to bring some people up and they wouldn't come? They stayed put? They were afraid? Yeah. After all the things that we talked about happening on the beach, is anyone surprised that you'd have pockets of men that would disobey orders and not move forward? Well, and with the 116th, Never have seen any action. Exactly. They what were green. Expect? What do you expect? You know, I mean, these guys, and this was this was a hellhole. These guys were coming in, and they were glad, as I mentioned earlier, they were glad to see the big red one on their flank because they knew that these guys had been through 
you know, live fire before like this. And this to me speaks to why experience and leadership are so important in instances like this. So the 29th Infantry Division, we already mentioned, hadn't seen any fighting before this. They were in England for two years and then they were detached to fight um, on D-Day. And in this case, one of the regiments was part of the, of the leading waves. All the things that went wrong, all the mix up, everyone being in the wrong places, all the horrific um, things that these men would have saw. Is it is it any surprise that uh, a, a green unit like the 116th would have hunkered down initially when asked to move forward? But, you know, this is where the training comes over because then later on in that clip, um, men from the 116th do move forward. Mm-hmm. They do look at people from the Big Red One and they're like, these guys have done it. They've survived it. They know what's going on. If we need to move forward to get off this damn beach and, and not die... Then, then we're going to do it. And ultimately, it was a man from the 116th that that blew the charge that opened up that particular draw. And for all we know, that could have been uh, Bill. I mean, I know Bill is adamant that there were no other people around but privates yeah. where he was at. Mm. And that's why all these guys were following him. Yep. And he said he had 16th Infantry guys following him too. Yep. So I don't know if maybe there were more landing, that they were more spread out than what these books how much do these books really get right? Yeah. A lot of times you, you can go from book to book and find different accounts of the same thing, and they're they're different. I believe Bill. I believe that he actually did what he said he did. Right. And when he came in and he had these guys all following him, I think they were all kind of moving up in the individual little groups. They saw him leading. They saw a guy ahead that was just plowing forward, and uh, he inspired enough uh, men to follow him that he got the battlefield commission the next day. So... You know, this is the last clip that we have specifically about D-Day, and we talked about the casualties and the role that the 116th played in it. Ryan, you've got some uh, some statistics on this, yeah, and they, so they're not good. This is from a uh, this is Appendix One in in Balkowski's book here, just talking about the Allied casualties in Omaha, Omaha Beach. Um, so for the for the 29th Infantry Division. The 116th Infantry Regiment. There was also the 115th, the 121st Engineer Combat Battalion a whole host of units that landed on Omaha Beach. But the 116th Infantry Regiment had 1,007 casualties, 247 killed, 576 wounded, and 184 missing. You know what missing means. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and that was that was for D-Day. That was just for D-Day. And so you're talking about 1,500 men. That's half. There's 3,000 men to that regiment. Mm-hmm. On one day. On one day. It, it, actually, in about four hours. And the, the, the other thing that's interesting is the, the unit that was second in the highest number of losses was the 16th Infantry Regiment, right? Ming, intermixed with Bill's unit with the 100, 116th. Where did those guys land? They landed together. WN-62, which was the fortification that they had to take out, was the heavy, most heavily fortified and staffed and well-guarded area of all of Omaha Beach. And these numbers bear that out. Totally. No tanks, no artillery, no engineering support, men with Bangalore torpedoes, and uh, destroyer captains disobeying orders that allowed that to happen. So the 16th Infantry Regiment had 86 killed. The 116th Bill's unit had 247 killed. Yeah. And, and that's far and away the highest numbers of any Omaha Beach casualties. And a bit of foreshadowing, as we move away from D-Day and into the other battles that the 116th participated in, um, there's going to be a um, a repeated need to resupply and bring in replacements. Because um, unlike a lot of infantry divisions that landed on D-Day plus three, four, five, six, seven, where they landed intact and ready to be deployed with all their units in place, because of the buzzsaw that especially this regiment went through, which was one-third of the fighting force of the 29th, they they started the war heavily depleted and were never really able to, to get to full strength like they were uh, when they were deployed on June 6th. It was that horrific. Mm. So, so this ends um, the segment on D-Day, and now uh, we're going to transition to what happened after that. There's, this is uh, one or two days that we've covered so far in Bill's experience. There's still another year's worth of fighting, and we're going to start talking about that next. This concludes Episode 3 of the six-part Bill Parker series on the Warrior Next Door podcast. Please join us next time for Episode 4, where Bill discusses the hedgerow fighting immediately after D-Day in Normandy and becoming a squad leader.